Hey, I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archives. Over the past several weeks, we've been hearing from some of the biggest artists of all time, people like David Bowie, Mick Jagger, Prince, Tom Petty, as well as some of the lesser-known one-hit wonders among us. <laughs> yes. Now, joining me once again, my co-host and creator of the show, Tom Joke. Hey, Christopher. Yeah, we've been getting some great feedback. And don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod or on Facebook at Famous Lost Words. People, of course, are really liking the superstar interviews, but they also like the other artists, too. You know, the interview we did a few weeks ago with Boy George, real highlight, and people were commenting on it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, personally to me and on social media. Our chat with Taylor Swift from 2010 got a lot of attention. And then there's that weird story about <laughs> yeah. Mama Cass being hit on the head with copper piping and then being able to sing better afterwards. Yeah, that's that's a personal favorite. People are going, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, some great moments on when rock stars attack. And you can catch up with past episodes on the iHeartRadio app and on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, please tell others and give us a good review and some love on social media. This week, we've got another great show, starting with perhaps the most legendary name in our archives. That's right. Now, we'll get started with John Lennon in a few minutes. There was a ton of animosity with John and the Beatles in 1970. But by the time of this interview, a few years later, you could tell that a little time had passed. Some of the wounds had begun to heal. And for something completely different, we have a 2009 interview with Justin Bieber. He's 15 years old, he's brand new to the game, and in Justin's own words, this interview is... Uh, really, 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 really great. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's cute. It is. It really very, is. very cute. Yes. <laughs> and to me, any show that has a Beatle and a Beeb... Side by side. You know, we got something going on here, man. (laughs) Exactly. And Christopher, I'm finally going to play you my most cringeworthy interview. Uh And that's because I got our producer, Adam, to edit out the cringy parts. Oh, come on. That's no fun. (laughs) You know what? We can relive it to a certain extent when we talk about it. But by God, you're not going to hear the whole thing. (laughs) So it's me and uh, my chat with the guys from Def Leppard. And what's left is pretty darn good, if you ask me. I'd actually have to say it's... Uh, Really, 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 really really great <laughs> you know I I smell a shtick yes da, 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 da. and then we always play uh, Justin and if you're a Rush fan or a, more specifically if you're a Rush geek then we've got the geekiest Rushiest clip of all time <laughs> all that plus we end our episode with the wisdom of Dave this okay is, this is turning into a comedy show <laughs> okay let's get started with John Lennon from 1974 We have a wonderful interview with John Lennon that, uh, for me, is an absolute time capsule. Now, I'm carbon dating it, Tom, to 1974, because further into the interview, he makes reference to working on this album, uh, Walls and Bridges, and working on an album that he produced for Harry Nelson called Pussycats. Right. Now, John and Yoko had a unique relationship with Canada. Because of immigration issues in the U.S., the couple visited Canada in the spring of 1969, staging a bed-in for peace at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. Uh, They also recorded Give Peace a Chance there as well. Now, there was a wonderful exhibit called Imagine the Peace Ballad of John and Yoko put together by Yoko at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts in 2009 that relived beautifully those times. Now, they were in Toronto 
about three months later to perform at a show called the Rock and Roll Revival. Do you know that show, Tom? <laughs> I've heard. It is legendary, Christopher. Legendary. Were you there? I was there. It was at Varsity Stadium. It featured what you would have called classic rockers in, in those days. Uh, people like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, and <laughs> Bo Diddley and others. Now, the Lennon band was John and Yoko, Eric Clapton, Klaus Vorman, and Alan White. Uh, they rehearsed on the plane for the first time on the way over. Uh, they did eight songs, a couple with Yoko lying on the stage in a bag, wailing. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it was just as bizarre as it sounds all these years later. Wow. But here's the clincher. Do you know who the headline act for the show was? You mean it wasn't them? No. Wow, who? It was The Doors. <laughs> Well, they were pretty big at the time. That would be amazing, but still. Yeah, it was. It was memorable, shall we say. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, all of this came about because of a frosty reception that Lennon was getting from U.S. immigration. So here's John in that mid-'70s interview addressing that. Well, every now and then, you know, they, whoever they are, announce that I've got 30 days to get out of the country, and then my lawyers go in and appeal it. And that gives me a few months' grace, you know. Mm -hmm. And I haven't left America for the last three years, because if I leave, I don't think I'd get back in. So I know uh, a friend of ours, a mutual friend called Ronnie Hawkins, and thought I was in town, but I'm, I'm not. I'm in New York, and I'd love to be able to travel, but at the moment it's impossible. If you should leave the country, I suppose they just will bar you entirely, is that right? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a Charlie Chaplin, you know. If I left, I wouldn't get back in. Uh, I'd hate to, you know, I'd come back in when I'm 60 and they give me a plaque, a gold record or something. Oh, wow. You know, it's so cool that he mentioned uh, Ronnie Hawkins there. I don't know if you know that he actually stayed with Ronnie on Ronnie's estates in the, uh, in the Toronto area, and he racked mm -hmm. up a $9,000 phone bill while he was there. And depending on what you read online, <laughs> Either Yoko paid that bill shortly thereafter, or, more to Ronnie's telling, it was never paid at all, and he was stuck with that bill. <laughs> <laughs> but he's been telling the story ever since. Oh, right? yeah. Oh, yeah. And what a great storyteller Ronnie Hawkins is. Oh, he's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So, John has also had his disagreements with the British government as well. I never objected to paying taxes of however high they were because it gave people false teeth, you know? Yes. I mean, that's putting it simply. Right. I didn't like the idea of buying, you know, jets and bombs and things, I, and, but I was never sort of quite capable of doing the Joan Baez trip, you know, mm -hmm. which was not to pay and fight it like that. Right. But I never objected to paying taxes, you know, as long as they leave me enough to live on, mm -hmm. I, I don't mind. But I do understand a, a performer wanting to sort of save some of the money they earn because it's a, it's a short life for most of us. John, if you indeed... We get, maybe we get overpaid for a short period, but we're like footballers, you know? Right. Once you get into your 30s, which I'm in, I mean, how long can you go on making money, you know? Certainly, certainly. I, 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 don't, I don't object to them trying to hoard a bit because they've got a long life ahead of them. Wow. You know, it's so interesting that the prospect of their career ending early was always in the back of their minds, you know? That comes up a lot in the, in the book about Paul McCartney, uh, the biography that came out last year. And he always thought his career was just like six months away from being over. And you can tell that <laughs> with, with what John said there. Well... You know, it's always fun to look back on that era. I mean, Beatlemania was brilliantly marketed. There were the lads waving on the tarmac, having pillow fights in the hotel, and holding cheeky press conferences. Now, what do you call your haircut? 
Arthur. But the reality <laughs> was closer to a prison. The harrowing effects of fame are chronicled in George Harrison's 1980 autobiography, I, Me, Mine. Um, Lennon talks about how it affected the group. I think it, it, at first when it happened, all of us were a bit shocked by it happening, even though it was happening to us. And probably it was a scary thing. Suddenly all of us were on our own. So we all reacted in our own ways. I always called it uh, growing up in a glass house. I always felt that we were sort of like a bunch of mushrooms that had been forced grown. He also talks about his life post-Beatles. It'll never be the same again, and once is enough, thank you very much, as being a Beatle and all that. You know, we couldn't even go to the movies or go out to dinner, right? We spent our lives indoors. But now I, get, I love it, you know? I mean, people just say hi or, you know, what's cooking or something, and a few people ask for autographs, but mainly they just sort of wave or shake your hand, and I get about and I go to eat. And I'm enjoying all the things I couldn't do for 10 years, you know? Oh, wow, that is so ironic. John Lennon talking about his freedom in New York and how the people treat yeah. him, how they wave to him, and how they leave him alone. I, You know, I've heard clips like this before coming from him, and it's just devastating in the light of what eventually happened to him, you know, five, six years later. You know, I've never heard a quote that poignant before. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is a real goldmine. Thanks for digging this up. Yeah. Um, The other thing, too, is that Lennon experienced a kind of musical freedom after the band split up, working with people like Harry Nilsson and Elton John. Well, it was almost by accident. I was producing Harry Nilsson's album, Pussycat, out now in your local store, folks. (laughs) And we were hanging out together, and uh, we wrote a song together. Mm -hmm. And so I put it on my album, and Harry, of course, wanted to sing it because he'd been part of it, so he sang the harmony. Mm -hmm. And with Elton... I was, uh, I'd been introduced to Elton maybe eight months ago by a mutual friend, Ringo, and another guy, Tony King from Apple, and we got on fine together, you know? Mm -hmm. And he just popped into New York on his way through and walked in the studio and said, hey, can I put some piano on that? And I said, sure, you know, go ahead. So he runs in, plays piano, and then I said, look, while you're here, do you want to sing harmony? He says, sure, and he sang the harmony, and that's on the single, whatever gets you through the night. And then he, he told me he was going to record Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds for a single. Right. And he asked me, would I go to Caribou and sing it with him? So I said, sure, you know, it'll be a pleasure. So I went down there and sang that. And that's the way it goes. And it's good fun, you know, because people spark each other off, you know. Oh, he sounds so happy in these clips. He sounds so upbeat. And, you know, working with Elton, he just seemed like just thrilled and it he, i don't know he seemed to have a renewal i think in his in his life and his music and a and a newfound uh, enthusiasm for it because i think for a while there it was it was pretty down mm-hmm. well is if i recall my lennon history this is still part of the lost weekend which <laughs> went on for a number of years right 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 and that's when he was hanging out with harry nilson and getting kicked out of the troubadour and all those other uh, legendary tales right the nilson album pussycats sounds like it was just a mess to record and in fact John took the tapes back to New York to try to bring some order to the process. <laughs> but the only problem working with Elton wasn't musical at all. When no. I was with Elton, I was only there for two days. I couldn't breathe. It was so high up, you know, I was nearly fainted. Oh. Just trying to sing Lucy in the Sky was killing me. But I guess you'd have to be there a week and relax first. Oh, yeah, that would be hard working at high altitude. You know, it, it changed, the air is different, and it would be hard to sing, for sure. Now, Lennon was known 
to be a taskmaster in the studio. He made musicians like drummer Jim Keltner do sometimes hundreds of takes of a single song. He definitely had his own way of working. I like to use the same musicians for a whole album. I like to augment them with different people, but basically I like to get, get people that I've worked with before, if possible, because then they know what I'm talking about, you know, if I'm trying to explain myself to them. And also, I feel more relaxed if I'm with friends, you know? Right. And I like, and if they've played together before, it's the next best thing to having a permanent group. You know, one of the big questions that just hovered over the, the 70s, sort of post-Let It Be, was will they, won't they, could they, mm-hmm. you know? And at the time, it was said that Lennon was the main impediment to a Beatles reunion. But if you listen to this clip closely, not only what he says, but the tone of it, where he talks about the other members, you can't help but feel that it might have been only a matter of time, time that, of course, it turns out they never had. With all this immigration business, I mean, the others were getting a bit of a problem too. You know, Paul and George had quite a problem getting in sometimes. Mm-hmm. The four of us haven't even sat in a room together for four years. I've seen Ringo, I've seen Ringo and Paul together. I've seen Paul separately, and I've seen George separately, but many have spoken to him on the phone. So if you can imagine those circumstances, we don't really have a chance to discuss anything like that. Right. Anything's possible, but it's, uh, as I said in the Ray Coleman article, if you say it's possible, it comes out that, yes, they're going to get together. If you say no, it sounds like a negative and they can't stand each other. So anything's possible, and we all get on fine, and you never know, you know, and we, we just haven't had time to get around to that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. Christopher, you're so right. It seemed like only a matter of time before they reunited. And it's great to hear him so upbeat, and yet it's so tragic at the same time. That's really, really amazing audio. Gather around the podcast or the radio as I tell you a story about a young boy who had no idea of what the future held for him. We travel back to a different time, to 2009. Glee and Modern Family, remember those? Were brand new to TV. Beyonce's single ladies flew up the charts and inspired countless parodies. Michael Jackson was gearing up for his comeback that was not to be. And 15-year-old Justin Bieber was on the cusp of something extraordinary. Now, I don't believe this interview was ever aired simply because at that point in his career, we didn't play Justin's music. Uh And I think the record company came in and said, look... This guy's going to be huge. Would you please interview him? We said, sure, why not? Yeah. But the crazy thing is, it was still a few years away from starting to play him because he was still a couple years away from having pop crossover success. Right, right. So, and you can tell that even though he was well known to his young fans, we were still getting to know him at this point. Yeah, yeah. This is a great interview, not only for what we hear, but for what we know is coming. So here's Justin Bieber in conversation with Richie Favalero. Straight out of Stratford... Man, you look taller on TV. Justin Bieber, how you doing? What's up, dude? <laughs> so, uh, how's how's things going for you right now? Uh, really, 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 really great. I'm very happy to where to be where I am right now. Fifteen years old, you started singing. I hear uh, only about three years ago. Yeah. Self-taught, taught yourself guitar, which you played for us. Uh, also piano, t- trumpet, drums. Yeah. What made you decide three years ago that uh, you wanted to do this music thing? Well, it just kind of like. I started playing drums when I was about two, so I always wanted. To, I always knew I wanted to be. I wanted to perform. I always loved to be in the spotlight. I loved. I always loved attention. So, I always knew I was meant to do this, but I didn't know what I was gonna do. So, um, I I, I just sing around the house. But um, when I was about twelve, I entered a singing competition for fun, and 
my friends and family that couldn't make it wanted to see me, so uh, my mom and I posted videos on the internet of uh, me singing, and um, and I I was then found by my manager Scooter Braun on the internet on YouTube. Uh, he flew me out to Atlanta where I got to meet Usher, and I ran up to him, and it was kind of coincidence. We didn't we didn't really mean to meet so I ran up to him I was like Usher Usher I love your songs you want me to sing you one and he was like he gets so many people asking him to sing for him because he's Usher show so um so I went up to him I was like can I sing for you and he's like uh it's cold outside just go inside little buddy so I went inside and uh I didn't get to sing for him he was late for a session so um but then my manager ended up talking to him because he knew him and uh uh, and then a week later, he actually got to look at my videos. And a week later, he flew me back out to Atlanta because he realized, yeah. What he missed. Yeah. Yeah. And now, uh, Usher, you got Usher working with you on your uh, debut out. CD. Yeah. Uh, my world, yeah, right, and it's going to be coming out September, maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're looking, yeah. So you even got a duet with Usher on on the CD. Yeah. How'd that go? It went really, really, really great. And you got awesome production from uh-huh. uh, Tricky Stewart, yep. uh, who did Umbrella and Single Ladies. Yep. Did you ever think, like, ever imagine when you were sitting at home in Stratford that uh, you'd no, be definitely not. where you are now? No. Yeah. And let's talk about the video for one time. Usher makes an appearance. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of a big party scene. How much fun was it to shoot the music It was video? so much fun. Like, it's it's so much different going from, like, a webcam to, like, a professional camera with light lighting and, like... People doing your hair and stuff, so it's pretty awesome. What's the craziest thing that uh, that's happened to you since this whole ball started to roll and this newfound fame? It's it's really the fans. Like they're so like they're so amazing. Like there's so many that show up to to all my play to all the interviews. There's been people calling, people follow me on Twitter. So I'm just thankful for my fans. And fans you have. Let's talk about YouTube. You mentioned YouTube earlier. Yeah. You got a big following. 3.5 million views, and that's just your channel alone. Let's talk about the videos of you singing everybody from Neo to Justin Timberlake. Something like 60 million views, all those videos. Uh And uh, like you said, it was YouTube that got you hooked up with your manager. Yeah. And now with your label. Yeah. And now with Usher and all these guys. Tell us a little bit more about My World, the the debut CD. What's it going to sound like? Um, It's it's like... um it's like a pop. It sounds like Justin Bieber. <laughs> um, no, but it sounds. It's like pop R and B. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like my own little flavor to it. Yeah. Well, what? Where do you get your flavor from? Who are your biggest inspirations? Um, well, a man that just passed away, um, Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, definitely inspired me. But a lot of different R and B artists. Uh, I've always liked Usher. I've always liked um, the whole soul thing. So. Um, that really inspired me, but I also listen to a lot of other stuff too. So it's kind of I listen to a lot of variety of music. And you write your own stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and namely the debut single, which just uh, came out on iTunes this week. One time. One time. Tell us about that song. Tell us what that song is about. Uh, it's kind of like um, teen love, kind of like uh, life. Like I don't know. It's like a fun song that uh, teens like to listen to, and uh, yeah. A l- little bit about love. A little bit about love. A little bit about just having fun. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure a lot of girls want to know if Justin Bieber has a girlfriend. And no, I do not. I'm single. Probably for the single best. Single and ready to mingle. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Lady Gaga says to be a successful pop star, you have to sacrifice everything for music, including 
uh, boys or for your case, girls. Girls. Yeah. Um, I don't sacrifice them completely. <laughs> I mean, I take out a few girls every now and then. Sure, why not? <laughs> why not? Well, what do you got going on with uh, Nick Cannon? What's that all about? Uh, we just shot a movie. It's called School Girls. Um, Perfect. Yeah, so it's kind of these these girls, kind of his artists, um, are just these girls. It's like a um, kind of mean girls meets Nickelodeon, kind of like... Uh, yeah, so it's 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 a new movie that's coming out. I, I kind of make a, a cameo in it, so it, it it's gonna be awesome. Awesome. And uh, what's next for you? What's your schedule like? Uh next, just hopefully, just right now. I'm gonna go back to uh, right now. Where am I going next? You know what? My crazy. schedule is so full, I don't even know where I'm going next. So, <laughs> so yeah. how about in September when My World drops? Are you going to have a big CD release party? Yes. I and will. are you going to have it here? Uh, I don't know yet. We haven't really scheduled that yet. All right. Well, cool. Justin, the best of luck. Uh, Thank one you time, very much. Huge single. Tons of fans already, yeah. and you've only just begun. So big things for you in the future. Thank thanks you for, so much. Thanks for coming by. That's a fantastic piece from the archives it really is yeah you know it's amazing it's only nine years old um but but i think with an artist like that an artist that's that young and that big hearing him at the beginning this is pre-mega fame like he's famous to a whole legion of fans at that point but he's not famous to the bigger world at that point Mm -hmm. and so it is fascinating to know what's coming and he's pretty sweet in that interview and you know that he you know the fame has affect will affect him eventually in the next few years sometimes in a, in a fairly notable and um and controversial way yeah for sure and and so it was it was it was really interesting to hear that but you had a really early experience with justin too i i did i was a judge on a kids talent show called the next star it ran for four years at least when i was on it from uh, 2008 and they booked a relatively unknown singer who was becoming a youtube star right and this was for season two and the finale in September of 2009. So by the time of the show, Bieber's first single, One Time, had hit. And the frenzy surrounding this guy was reaching, we'll say, an early peak. I right. mean, it definitely went further after that. Now, I remember there were kids waiting outside the gates of Canada's Wonderland where the show was being done um, before this theme park even opened. And... Um, even, even through the afternoon rehearsal, it was closed to the public. The entire amphitheater was surrounded by young girls trying to peer through the foliage that wow. encircled the venue to catch a glimpse of Justin. And I got to say, I was skeptical. I, this single sounded like kind of manufactured teen pop to me. Right. And the frenzy seemed more based on the do. Remember the hairdo that he had? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did that with your hair, didn't you, for a while? I did. It, yeah. yeah. Well, we had to. Tommy Bieber. <laughs> You know what? I was wrong, and I found out that day when he and his guitar player, Dan Cantor, were rehearsing this acoustic song they were going to play called One Less Lonely Girl. So during the rehearsal, Justin was bored like any typical 15-year-old while they were setting the staging and doing the lighting and Mm. all that sort of thing. And he started messing with the song, and slowly he started playing it in all these different musical feels. And I found myself thinking, wow, this guy has a very serious degree of musicality, particularly for a 15-year-old. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in that moment I thought, no, he's the real deal. Mm-hmm. Does, did you find it to be more soulful than what, what, than what you had previously heard from him then? Well, he did a second song on the mm-hmm. show. Uh, I think it was called One Time. 
forgive me if I got it wrong. Um, and that one was to track, and it was very yeah. much, you know, he was doing the little heart symbol. And every time he did the heart symbol, the girls would scream. It was like, okay. But no, when he did this, I mean, he sang terrifically, sang in tune, and, and his phrasing was great. And oh, yeah, I was impressed. That's great. That's mm. great. You know what, Tom? It's easy to forget that after 140 million records sold and counting, Justin Bieber is only 24. That is unbelievable. And he's been through so much, and I'm really curious to see what's going to become of him and his career in the coming years. You know, there are times when I believe he absolutely has what it takes to for the long run, and there are times when I'm a little bit worried about him. And as you know, we play interviews from all eras, but if you're kind of from the Justin Bieber era, we've got interviews coming up by Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, Bruno Mars, many of the more recent talents and superstars that have come through, as well as other superstars like John in which we just heard uh, many from that era as well so please listen up please stay with us on famous lost words tom you have a story to tell one that's very near and dear to your rock and roll heart oh man you know a few weeks ago we played your interview with uh, elvis costello mm-hmm. and you remember it as being kind of cringeworthy and it took you 25 years to get back to listening to it again. And when you did, you found that it wasn't as bad as you thought it was going to be. I actually had a complete turnaround. Right. I found that it was actually really good right. on his end, where yes. I was just kind of intimidated. Right. I saw the interview, and I heard the interview. So mm-hmm. I saw the, in, the the TV clips that you sent me, and I heard the interview clips on our podcast when we played it back. And when you just hear it, it's perfectly fine. When you see it, you can see the kind edge. of the edge and the nastiness yeah. that he brought to it. He does so, not suffer fools gladly. No, he <laughs> did Myself <not>. included. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back now 23 years to 1995, and I'm interviewing Def Leppard. I'm interviewing Rick the Drummer mm-hmm. and Rick Savage, a.k.a. Sav. I real, was really looking forward to doing this interview, but I got off on the wrong, on the wrong foot by calling them a power ballad band because all of their recent hits had been power ballads and they were promoting a song I think called Two Steps Behind from an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and so I kind of went into it like that and honestly I had Mm. to try to walk that back for the next seven minutes of the interview. They kind of kept coming at me going Look, I don't know why you're saying this because we're not that. (laughs) Anyway (laughs) I've, I've saved you the the horror of having to listen to that all over again, know, and know. I've gotten to the good parts, and this actually did turn out um, uh, to be a fairly decent interview once I got it back on track. It actually got to the point where they said, let's move on, when we were still talking about that topic. Ouch. But it got much better, especially when I commiserated with them about the failed attempt to work with producer Jim Steinman, right. who's best known for his melodramatic, over-the-top work with Meatloaf, Air Supply, and Barry Manilow. Let's listen. When um, you were ready to record the Hysteria album, I believe you were hooked up with Jim Steinman, uh, who, who's renowned for his work with Meatloaf. And quite frankly, to me, that sounds like a match made in hell. Was it? What happened? Like, it never did come out. That sounds and- like a Jim Steinman <laughs> song, guys. I know, that that good, eh? Um, yeah, he, he, was, he was just wrong for the way, for the way that we'd, uh, we were used to. We were used to working with the, with Matt Lang, and Matt Lang, he's really sort of hands-on, and, you know, he'll he'll come up with really good ideas and just sort of thrash them out, you know, between either individual members or as, as, as a group. And uh, Jim Steinman really, he, he he didn't really work in that way. He uh, 
he really fell short of the way that we'd become accustomed to making records. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he, um, his lyrics and presentation of music, um, not not to begrudge him of anything, because he does well with the with the meatloaf, uh, you know, in that sort of framework. But it's very melodramatic, and it's really. Uh, the antithesis of what you guys seem to be all about. So when I read that, I read it earlier today, and I went, "What, Jim Steinman?" Yeah, well, you you obviously knew more than we did because uh, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It, Why didn't it just, you tell us? It just didn't. It didn't work out. I mean, we we when we realised that Mutt Lang wasn't going to originally going to produce the record, we wanted somebody that had obviously was a, a record producer, but was also a songwriter as well that had a good idea about of melodies and songs. And in fairness, Jim Steinman has written some great songs mm -hmm. in the past, and mm -hmm. you can never take that away from him. In my opinion, and in the group's opinion, he's really not a record producer. He is a songwriter, mm -hmm. and he's a very good songwriter. He doesn't come across as a record producer at all, not in the way that we think of record producers. And it, it just it just didn't work out. You know, the, the man was just not not into producing a, a band he didn't know. necessarily have his his mind you know in into what what we were doing uh we, we're always used to you know matt sort of committing himself totally whereas whereas jim was at the same time he was trying to work with us he was trying to work on his own material which was a bit of a conflict of interests mm -hmm. you know it, it just meant that uh time for him was very short you know actual hands-on working with the band mm -hmm. so you know I mean, although he's 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 a very talented songwriter, mm -hmm. like like Sav says, I don't I don't think we really knew enough about him, so uh, consequently, it didn't necessarily go the way we thought it was. One yeah. of the 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 fifth leopard, as I've I've heard him referred to, or the sixth leopard, is uh, is Robert John Mutline, who you're speaking of, and he really is important to the to the group sound, and he's well known for producing you guys and producing. Uh, uh, Brian Adams, mm -hmm. and also for being married to country singer Shania Twain, who's mm -hmm. from who's from uh, from Canada. Right. Um, tell us a little bit about him because he really is an enigma. He's such a low profile, um, uh, understated kind of guy. There's it's hard to get a handle on him. You guys work with him. Tell us about him. He's, <clears throat> in my opinion, he's still one of the most talented people in in the music industry. He's a an unbelievable talent when it comes to producing he produces less and less he now tends to just work with individual uh artists i.e brian adams or michael bolton and uh, or shania twain <clears throat> and he's still a great producer he's an unbelievable songwriter he's an inspiration to anybody that meets him whether you've got anything to do with music or, or not mm -hmm. each of you were extremely young when you first joined the group when the group was formed um tell us how rock stardom looks uh, from someone who has seen it from both sides, how, how does it look? Um, <laughs> well, uh, early early days, it was uh, we, we were all very naive. It was it was just a it was a nice way of uh, doing something constructive, getting off the street corners. You know, um, we never had uh, any any clue or idea that uh, things would get as successful as the, as they have. Uh, but uh, that really wasn't the motivation. It was just to do something as a group and do something constructive. Um, and I think to a certain extent, you, you're very sheltered. You know, we, you know we, still, we still like each other, we still hang out with each other, so you, you, tend, you tend to cut yourself off a little bit from, you know, from what other people might, might think of you. Um, but uh, I don't know, what's your take on it? It ain't what it's cracked up to do. <laughs> People think that being 
successful in whatever whatever term you want to use, it's a bit of a myth because it is hard work and it ain't the glamour that a 12-year-old person may think that it is. Mm-hmm. It really isn't. I mean, like I said earlier, we'd, we've been doing promotion the last two months and we've visited 23 countries and that is not glamorous at all. It's It's very very tiring yeah relentless <laughs> and there's a lot there's a lot to it that that really is hard work and well, you do it you do it because of the music the music is the one thing that is is the the savior you know and that really is what keeps you going uh, beyond all the adversity rick with with your accident uh several years ago and you losing steve uh, well other than the fact that i can't do anything else <laughs> <laughs> there is that we've thought about that as well, we're not really good at anything else so we better stick with this you know yeah. no it is it's it, the 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 big motivator is is knowing that you know you can write songs and you can record songs and you know, if if you can make people happy in the process, then that's all you really need. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, that that is worth all the all the work that you do because there's a lot of rubbish that goes along with the actual job of me getting on stage playing a bass guitar. It's very that is very simple, but there's a million things that that get you there that aren't as aren't as glamorous as uh, people may think. But the, the good definitely outweighs the bad, I think. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, the the idea that, you know, um, yeah, we have a certain amount of freedom. Um, you know, we can we can pretty much uh, live wherever we want to live. And we've, we've met certain people that, you know, like Sav was talking about Mutt earlier, you know, or uh, just various people, you know. I great. think anybody that, that actually gets um makes a healthy living out of doing something they do as a hobby is a very lucky people and mm-hmm. we fall into that category you know now one of you were, was going to be a one one of you was apprenticing as a railroad technician uh, that's me yeah. was that you yeah. and uh boy that didn't work out then huh <laughs> <laughs> i you, just i just he, couldn't handle that shovel good he, enough you know? no he, he actually went into something a little more exciting than that he uh he was actually going to be a um well, he was a soccer player. Yeah, mm. actually, with the team that he doesn't like. That's <laughs> right, Sheffield. What's what's the I'm team a, called? I'm a lifelong Sheffield Wednesday supporter, mm-hmm. and uh, I played for Sheffield United. <laughs> Boy, that would have been. He was, he was like a, yeah. an imposter in the yeah, ranks. That would have been traitorous. <laughs> That's really. probably, when when it, when I was 16, and it became decision time to say whether they would uh, employ you full time when you left school or just release you. They said, "Sorry, son." You're not quite what we're looking for. Oh, boy. I said, thanks very much. I'll learn to play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? That was great. I love that interview. They're, they're um, I don't know, there's an ease about those guys and a yes. naturalness. So there's a kind of a no-nonsense quality about them that I really like. Yeah, absolutely. And it turned out to be fine, just fine. And um, I actually really liked hearing that again. So that was a, that was a bit of a treat. Uh, over something that was a little bit nightmarish for me. You will never do that again, I'm I know, sure. yeah. I know. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. Okay, we've got tons of audio in our vaults from Rush. Getty, Alex, and Neil talked to us countless times. First, because we were really good to the band. And second of all, because they lived only a few blocks away. <laughs> so you run into them at Starbucks, that right? That really helps. Yeah. Well, there was no Starbucks back then. Oh, oops. Yes. Yeah, they were at Fran's Kitchen. Um, this <laughs> wow. T- <laughs> this time around, I want to play just a couple of short clips that are pretty entertaining. This interview is from 1978 upon the release of Hemispheres. And this first clip is Neil Peart talking about the meaning of the album. And you have to admire Neil's complete 
devotion to this explanation, even the other guys chime in in complete understanding, right? This is weird. So it's like a sci-fi geek explaining an entire graphic <laughs> novel to you in five minutes, okay? Wow. Well, actually in two minutes in this case. Here's drummer and lyricist Neil Peart of Rush breaking down in breathtaking and kind of hilarious detail the meaning of the album Hemispheres. All right. And the story in the Cygnus X1 part of it was the story of our hero going through the black hole and it was just that episode of the story and this sort of gives the background to why he was going through the black hole and what he was looking for and uh, the theme of it really is the battle between the heart and the mind represented by two gods called Apollo and uh, Dionysus representing the rational side of human nature against the instinctive side of human nature and uh, it is the battle of heart and mind represented by these two gods and uh, the world is constantly being torn back and forth one one through one phase they're following Dionysus following the instinctive way of life of just living on the land and then uh, following Apollo they're living in a very civilized society very scientific um, very mentally oriented building huge buildings and beautiful cities and very um, very scientific style. Logically oriented. Yes, exactly. And then uh, this causes much confusion on Earth and the battle is taking place inside of each of the people. They're being torn one way and then the other way. And Cygnus is sent out. Our hero is sent out as the messenger to try and bring about some kind of resolution. In the Rosinante. Yes. Right. So he sets sail in the Rosinante through the black hole to reach Olympus, which is the home of the gods. And he goes to see them to see if there's some way that he can resolve the situation. And that's the story of Hemispheres. And uh, he does, happily, I guess. Yes, yes, he's he becomes uh, the god of balance. The god of balance. Well, the, in, in, in our hero, the gods sort of see the kind of... Uh, evidence of what this strife, this uh, age-long strife between heart and mind has has done to the world. And they sort of, through through his eyes, they see the things that they've been wrong, been doing wrong, and they sort of see that they have to come together. That's, that's He's sort of the bringer of balance to the whole scheme. And after this, he settles down, gets married, and has a nice job, <laughs> and walks down the yellow brick road. Sends his son to college. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> that is... Geek deep. Did you get a reading list before oh, the interview? I mean, man. that's crazy. And he's so sincere about it, right? And listen, I really love Rush, but I think like you, I'm a fan of the the Rush hits. Yeah. I'm a Tom Sawyer, Spirit of Radio, mm-hmm. um, Subdivisions, uh, New World Man kind of guy, as opposed to getting very deep into the, the concept albums. They also, I think, in a, in a very lovely way, kind of break the the impression that people have of them as being this very cerebral, serious bunch of guys. Yes. They're laughing. They're fun. Well, it's true, but Neil's seriousness on the at the beginning of that clip, for mm-hmm. the first like minute and a half of it, is a little disturbing. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> i give you that. Thankfully, amidst all the seriousness and earnestness, there's Alex Lifeson. From the same interview, here's the band joking around with Alex. Okay, what is your total involvement with this? It's it, The credit is for all I three of you guys. I left when they did it. I, I, <laughs> the credit is for all three of you guys, but yet I've heard that this is based a lot on something that you dreamed, Alex. Well, Alex, see, Alex has amazing No, dreams. let Alex speak about this. Uh, no, 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 don't okay. let him talk. Everyone gets headaches when see, I See, when he tells us about his dreams in the morning when we're on the road, Alex will get up and he'll go, I had this amazing dream, and we'll be going, don't tell us this dream, because Everyone gets headaches from your dreams. They're crazy. So it seemed like a great excuse to do a crazy song. So we needed an excuse to do a crazy 
self-indulgent. <laughs> it says yes. Okay. You, uh, you honestly turned this something that you just wanted to get out of yourselves? Or sure. What? There's a lot of things in there that we've been wanting to do for a long time. Put Music, musically. Number one, do an instrumental tune. Number two, uh, throw away. Get away with it. <laughs> number three, fire Alex. Number four, like. Uh, there's a section that would, if Tommy Dorsey was heavy metal, that's what he'd sound like. There's Danforth, Gene Krupa. Gene Krupa would have been really proud. That was there. There's Buenas Noches, mine friends, which okay. is the, with a D. Thank you, gentlemen, very much. Okay, bye. <laughs> okay, bye. That's great. That's great. <laughs> So that's Rush from 1978 talking about hemispheres. And wow. God love those guys. I really do love those guys. I think they, they made a real comeback with the uh, documentary that aired a few mm-hmm. years ago. And then, yeah. of course, they're in, finally their induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, despite Alex's completely bizarre acceptance speech. If you don't know what I'm talking about, he said blah, 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 blah for about two and a half minutes. Even the guys in the band were looking at each other going, what the hell is he doing when he was doing the blah, blah, blah? He, he li- literally blah, He blah, literally blah? said blah, 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 Uh-oh. blah, blah. He ran through the entire history of the band by only saying the word blah. <laughs> okay, we would play it, but trust me, it doesn't get any better than I've described it. So, yeah, you're okay. not going to hear it right now. If you want to YouTube it, it is... It is Weird and kind of wonderful at the same time, but ultimately just a bit much. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) boys and girls, we leave you with, I love this part, the wisdom of Dave. Here's David Lee Roth talking about the song Jump. But Dave being Dave, he tends to veer off the path a little. It's it's the first tune that we've done completely on synthesizers. And that's sort of new for Van Halen. It's not instead of, it's in addition to the sound that came before. So many times you get the fat cat manager in the five-piece suit with the gold watch chain. And he sits back and says, boys, I need some more gas for the yacht. You've got to sound more like Journey. You know, and a lot of bands will rush right out and buy up all the records, all the old Eagles records, and all the old Doobie Brothers records, and all the old so-and-so's records, and they'll listen to it with a fine-tooth comb, put it under the microscope, and go, ah, I know how to sing now. You know, like that. It's not necessarily what they really want to do, but I guess it puts gas in the bends, you know? That's where a lot of musicians are coming from and headed for the Mercedes-Benz store. (laughs) Oh, man. Dave, how did we start one. a jump and end up at the Mercedes-Benz store? That's just great. <laughs> my my favorite Wisdom of Dave moment was not what he said. It's after you heard the very, very first Wisdom of Dave a few weeks ago, and you yeah. said, I got to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That, yeah, that was the one about... Uh, he wants to aerobicize on oh, New Year's Eve. Watching oh, TV or something. He's undoing the top oh, buckle on his side. That's not good. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, that does it for this edition of Famous Lost Words. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Adam Karsh. And also a shout-out to Tim Friedlander of Soundbox Studios in Hollywood, California. And we can't forget Rob Wells, co-creator of our theme song with Christopher. I love the theme song. Thank you. Don't forget to follow us on Famous Lost Words on Facebook, on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod. And remember to catch up with past episodes on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app in Canada, the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. 